0: Welcome everyone to Research Integrity Matters. This is our very first podcast where we are planning to discuss research integrity and its importance to research quality. My name is Gauri Gopalakrishna and I am an epidemiologist by background, living and working in the Netherlands, Amsterdam to be specific. And I have been originally involved um, in the SARS epidemic and more recently with the COVID pandemic with a number of different colleagues on the red team. But my bread and butter research topic is really research integrity, which I have been busy with the last four years. Um, and as a spin-off to what I've been working on the last four years, the idea of creating a research integrity podcast for the research community was born. And so I'm here today with my co-host, Marino van Zelst. Um, And uh, Marino, perhaps you want to introduce yourself for our listeners?
1: Sure. Yeah, I'm uh, Marino van Zelst. I'm uh, an infectious disease modeler, um, but an organizational scientist by training um, and quite interested in um, how we publish research and how that, um, well, has all kinds of consequences, either positive because we communicate about science um, but especially the process of publishing, um, and all types of, um, well, ethical practices, um, uh, and routines coming to play. Um, and I'm very honored to co-host, um, this podcast together, um, with Gauri, um, as we'll talk about many, many topics um, along the way, um, in this podcast. Um, but, uh, today we have our first guest in the inaugural episode, um, which Gauri, I think you can introduce.
0: Yes, thank you. Thanks, Marino. So I'm very pleased to say that I very uh, for the first, I met Cassidy Sugimoto, who is a professor from the Georgia Institute of Technology and whose work focuses on the intersection of scienceometrics, science communication, and diversity. And I first met Cassidy um, while watching an online talk of hers, where she made reference to her research on how the Issues of diversity would affect the research quality that we do, Um, and that triggered my interest in Cassidy's work, and we're very honoured that we have managed to secure some time with her to speak to us today on intersectionality diversity and why research integrity matters Um, coincidentally this is also a theme of interest at the upcoming world conferences on research integrity which is due to take place from the 29th of may literally in a few days in cape town south africa it will be a hybrid conference so do check out their program online at world conferences on research integrity And uh, there will be many sessions which uh, can be attended online um, if you are not able to join us in Cape Town, South Africa. So without much ado, I would like to move to uh, Cassidy um, and start um, our discussion on uh, perhaps uh, starting off with the uh, recent publication that you've had on the proceedings of the National Academy of Science where you and your colleagues uh, explore the issues of intersectionality, specifically on gender and racial bias on research output. And in this piece, you analysed gender, race, research topic, and the impact of first authors of more more than 5 million research articles indexed in the Web of Science database, Amongst these findings, you reported that marginalized groups were overrepresented in topics with low citation counts, and that men overall were more highly cited than women. Think of finding that we have seen in many different uh, research papers as well. We're quite interested in hearing a little bit more about the background of this study and why you conducted this work. So could you elaborate on that for us? Sure.
2: Uh, thank you, Gary, and thank you for having me here today. I'm delighted to be able to talk about this research. We've been studying gender disparities specifically in science for nearly a decade, and we've demonstrated that women's labor is often devalued in authorship and citation. However, when we're presenting this work, two questions often arise. Is this merely an artifact of the types of work that women do? And does it really matter? So, for example, during COVID, we demonstrated that women's production dropped dramatically arguably due to increased domestic duties. And people responded that this was good for society. Children need their mothers. Mothers should be home with their children. Why could that possibly be seen as something negative? So it begged the question, does it really matter if we have fewer women in the scientific workforce? And taking that further, does it really matter whether we have fewer Black women in the scientific workforce, whether we have fewer indigenous populations in the scientific workforce. What does that actually change for science itself? So moving beyond the social justice issue to how it matters for science. So there were two studies that I would say are really foundational for the study we'll talk about today. One was a study that we did in Lancet. And what we were looking at was a fairly simple question. We wanted to see whether it mattered who was doing the study, on which populations were studied. So did we study male and female populations at different rates, whether it was a man or a woman who was conducting the study? And we found that indeed it was, that when women were conducting the study, they were far more likely to employ female subjects and to take sex as an analytic variable. So simply speaking, the more women we had in medical sciences, the more we knew about women's health. So that has huge consequences for society when we look at that. Another study that we didn't do, but I really appreciate and contributed to this, was one at the National Institutes of Health in the United States, where they were trying to understand why particularly Black and African-American populations in the U.S. were funded at lower rates. And what they found was Black and African-American populations were disproportionately likely to Propose studies that were really underfunded within the NIH, that is areas that received far fewer resources than other areas. So simply put, there were these areas of studies that were really relevant to the lived experiences of Black and African Americans in the U.S., and they didn't receive as many resources. And so there was this relationship between topic and identity. So that's what we set out to do in this PNAS thing, to really understand that relationship between the social, demographic, identities, topics, and citations.
0: That's that's really really interesting um, work that you've just um, explained to us. Um, but one question that you know immediately comes to my mind is: um, you've done uh, a lot of work that's focused on the U.S. Could you? Tell us a little bit more about um, some international trends. Well, we're uh, clearly based in the Netherlands, and I know you've got some context in the Netherlands as well. You've got some links um, in Leiden University, but speaking more on a global level, um, what what would be? You know, do you see the same kinds of trends also within ethnic groups? Mm-hmm.
2: Absolutely. So in in our studies, and I I do have to say how much I enjoyed my my time at Leiden University as a visiting professor, and and I (laughs) desperately wish I could come back, and also now serving as a visiting professor in Stellenbosch, I wish I could join you in in Cape Town soon.
0: Um, We wish we could have you.
2: (laughs) I'd love to be there. Um, So a couple of different things I'll say. Our studies on on gender, we have taken a global perspective and we have looked at this. Of course, there are regional differences in this that play off of the um, geopolitical and religious compositions of a country. So we see different ramifications for women, for example, in China versus Saudi Arabia versus Brazil. And so you'll see different levels of participation of women in those spaces. Now, when it comes to racial and ethnic composition, we focused on the US for a very simple reason, that race is often culturally constructed and it's codified within census tracts that are within a nation. So we use the US census to identify race. If we were to move to a different context, for example, South Africa, Um, we would have a very different set of racial categories that we would be working with. And so that is the focus of our next study right now, is we are trying to create the same kinds of algorithmic determinants of race and ethnicity for different um, census categories, such as those in South Africa and in Brazil, so that we can start to understand how this might play out in different countries. Um, Our work on gender suggests that there are some universal observations that we will see, but that is left to be studied.
1: So so related to that, you already mentioned you're working on this um, in the context of um, Brazil, for example, Saudi Arabia. So what type of work would you see as necessary in the future? So building on your study, like what do we need to know now, basically?
2: Absolutely. Well... I'll maybe go back, and then this may seem odd to provide a critique of our study here, but I think it's important, is we used an algorithmic disambiguation for both race and for gender. And why we do this is because we don't have access to self-identified gender or self-identified race or ethnicity categories. And so we have to do this sort of algorithmic disambiguation on millions of records. I would love it if countries would be willing to provide some of these data so that we could understand the true distribution by race and gender um, in publications, in the scientific work, come in output. Um, the, some countries collect these data and don't make them publicly available, and other countries don't collect these data. And so one of the sort of moving forward things is I would love to work with other governments or to understand from the data that they collect what their status is in terms of diversity in the scientific workforce and what the consequences are for their countries and the kinds of topics that are studied in their area. So I think that this is one of those areas where transparency in scholarly publishing, transparency in um, R&D statistics at a country level would be really helpful in moving the country forward towards a more robust scientific system.
0: Just for my understanding, uh, Cassidy, and perhaps maybe also for more I would, more general uh, listeners, uh, could you explain why, I mean, w- what are some of the reasons why this kind of data is not made available?
2: One of the chief reasons, and I think important reason, is privacy, And so when we're looking at it, if we can disambiguate and disaggregate, particularly for marginalized populations, they're the most easily identifiable. So within the United States, there are certain populations that have less than 100 graduates. For example, Native Americans in the US, I think there were only maybe 115 who graduated last year. So providing those kinds of statistics, um, it would be very easy to identify an individual person. So in terms of Research integrity and research responsibility, we have to balance that transparency with the um, privacy of the individual,
0: yeah, so there would be some challenges there um, in in terms of how can we protect an individual privacy whilst also you know balancing the need for transparency exactly yeah well um I mean given your work in this area, i'd like to move a little bit actually to uh, impact on policy and diversity. Uh, what would what would your views be in terms of you know what should we change in research organization for us to be able to improve on the outcomes that you have studied?
2: That's a great question and one that I I think about a lot. And sometimes when I answer, people think, oh, but each of those things, we've been doing that. We've been trying to recruit better or retain better, or we try these transparency things. But I think it has to be a full court press, right? It has to be all of these. It has to be a a systemic overhaul of research organization, which means full inclusion. Um, And full inclusion means not just, well, we accepted um, a much more diverse cohort into our graduate program, but it means, we accept them, we engage them into research, we make sure that marginalized populations are able to bring forward questions, to explore their questions, placing them in leadership positions in science. It means citing the work of marginalized scholars, inviting them to presentations. And in all of these things, it is moving marginalized populations from the periphery to the core, And what was striking to me in the PNAS paper was the clear scaffolding. It wasn't just that marginalized populations were studying topics that were less cited, but even when they were studying really highly cited topics, really core topics, they were also marginalized within those and received fewer citations. So even when these populations made it to the center, they were still peripheral. And so this takes and sort of a comprehensive overhaul of the system to um, eradicate some of these core periphery structures that we're seeing in terms of the valuation of science.
1: So, Kesti, what I was was thinking about with respect to your core periphery structure um, answer um, is do you have some practical or policy suggestions, especially on the full force, as you describe it, like we can't do incremental changes here. Um, So what would be like what would be an implementation of getting the peripheral into the core um, here
2: absolutely i think one way that i i like to think about it is in a very simplified linear fashion in the research process so if i think about myself you know as a pi and i have brought a, a student in i've hired a gra and at, at that moment when i'm making the selection of who to hire i have to think about Am I letting any sort of biases creep into this? Am I selecting on certain traits that are non-scientific traits? And we know from research that we do. So once I move past that, then I have to distribute labor within the team. And so then we say, am I selecting on any non-scientific traits in order to decide who leads this project? Who is the technician on this project? And we know from our work in contributorship that we do. We disproportionately assign leadership roles To white men, and we assign typically middle authorship roles to um, women and other marginalized populations. And what we know is just in that, just in those two moments of selection, whether you give someone a research opportunity in their graduate years and where you place them on the byline has massive path dependencies for where they end up in the scientific workforce. So you've already made two decisions. And then as you're writing that paper up, the kinds of questions that you're asking, are you taking into account the full voices of your team? Are you letting them bring it to it? How are you running your research lab meetings so that all voices are heard? And then how are you incorporating other kinds of research? And people working on citational justice are saying... Are you actually in a filter bubble, looking only at the research you know from the populations you know, using signals like the institutions where people are, the journals where they are, when you're citing things? So are you robustly interrogating the literature for past work? Um, Or are you preferencing certain, and we know it is typically white men from Western countries from high prestigious institutions. So then in just writing that You've already done so much work in that sort of core periphery structure and in overturning it. Then you're choosing where you submit. And then there's a process of peer review. And we have to ask our peer reviewers and our editors, what are you looking at when you're evaluating this manuscript for acceptance? right? And all of those selective m- mechanisms come back into play. We get published. Now I need more money for my research. I go back to a funding agency. We ask all the panelists, right? do we have a diverse composition in terms of the panelists that are reviewing that research, that are giving me funding, so that I can hire that next student and go on. So in that research process, every point at which we're making a selection, we have the possibility of making more robust decisions. I think that's where research integrity comes in. At each of those selection points, are we doing this in a meritocratic way? Or are we letting signals that we know are discriminatory signals creep into the research process?
0: It's such a great enlightening answer uh, on the issue of implicit biases as well and how it plays such a large role in the decisions that we take as minute as they may seem with larger consequences. Um, on, on, on that note of the link between the role of research integrity and upholding research quality, I have to say, um, having spent the last four years in the research integrity, in meta research on research integrity, there are often two schools of thought around this. There are a group of researchers in research integrity who often feel that the issues of diversity, equity, equity and inclusion, whilst extremely important in the ways that you have described are really issues of social justice and have no direct link to research quality And the other side uh, of the the community sees a direct link. And this other side of the community tends to be researchers, um, at least from my anecdotal experience, ones who are either from marginalized groups themselves or working in marginalized communities. Um, How do you look at this association between research integrity and diversity? And can you explain to us, you know, is there this direct link to research quality?
2: absolutely that's what that's what really motivates me to do this area of research because there is you know a part of my my personal life that has views on social justice but what drives this is really questions about robustness in science are we doing the most robust science and what does it take to ensure that we have robust science so one of the the sort of back of the envelope findings from the um National Academies study that I really love was we just said, let's do a counterfactual. Let's imagine that over the last 40 years that the scientific workforce actually matched the U.S. census. That is that we were representative of the population within the United States. How would that have changed research? What kind of research would we have seen? What kind of research would we have lost if we were to do that? And what we found is if it matched it, we would have had 29% more articles in public health more on gender-based violence, 25% more in gynecology and gerontology, 20% more in immigrants and minorities, and 18% more on mental health. Now, if you look at the news from the last 10 years, the kinds of pressing concerns that we have in society, my argument would be that having that diverse population in science would have led to science that had greater utility for society over the last decade. What we would have lost would be a little bit of economic research. And I'm not sure that that would have had such a negative effect on on our society. And so what we're looking at is really how can we make sure that the questions that we're asking um, are those that are of the greatest utility for science and for propelling science forward and for society. What we're showing with our research is that they have huge ramifications um, for society and for science, not only our work, but several other work have shown that having diversity on a team makes something more innovative, that it actually increases the, um, the revenue generated by different products as they go on the market when they've had different things. So there's massive implications here that this is not just about social justice. It's not just about the individual in science and giving them pathways that may not have been accessible to them before, but it actually changes the entire scientific ecosystem with positive benefits for society.
0: Now, I just want to come back actually to this issue of, I mean, it's obviously a a topic that's close to my heart also because it's, you know, I have plenty of lived experience being a female ethnic minority working in medicine. Uh, so I just want to come back, actually, to revisit um, the, the issue that we just discussed on policy. And I think it was a great conversation that we just had on moving from the peripheral, you know, to the core. And you gave some some tangible ways in which this can be done. But I cannot help but, you know, but think to myself that these are all conscious effort that needs to be put in place. So you need to consciously be aware of what more can I do? Who else might I be excluding as a result of my process, as a result of my, the decisions that I have taken, and I guess it's leading me down to the question of asking: How can we make this more ingrained in our processes, um, in in our culture? And I guess that's you know kind of like the golden question, maybe: How can we make that you know um, uh, what what needs to happen? How can we really make that in, in, into a part of the way that we function?
2: Absolutely, and of course I have an an idealist perspective that it would become ingrained and that it would be culturally ingrained. But I think policy levers have a huge place here. If we look at the National Institutes of Health, for example, it was not until they mandated that you study both populations in a study, or you justify sex exclusion, that we saw a real difference. It's a dramatic change in literature. So if you look at the biomedical literature both before and after that policy intervention, you see that that changed things. When we have institutes that provide resources for research taking a stand on some of these issues, it has implications. Researchers will follow where the money <laughs> leads them. right? right? As, as horribly crass as that sounds, um, it's true. So I do think that there is a space here for, for governments, for funding agencies particularly, but also for journals who are gatekeepers for scientific production to take a stand on some of these issues. And by creating those policies, that's where you're going to see the fastest shifts. Now, hopefully over time, those shifts will lead to immediate um, reaction. So the intervention will have an effect, but then it will become a culturally conscious thing that we are doing. But its um, I think it really will take some of those policy levers to see the kind of change that we want to see in a timely manner.
1: You mentioned the journals, Cassidy, as gatekeepers um, of science, of course, the entire process of editors, reviewers, um, um, and then publication, of course. So where do you see aspects um, um, with respect to what journals could change to um, uh, well improve this?
2: How much time do we have, Marina? <laughs> um,
1: <laughs> if you want to talk about journals, we'll have enough time because I <laughs> I love talking about that.
2: Yeah, I have I have a lot of thoughts. So you mentioned some of the the human gatekeepers, right? So we do have the journal editors and the reviewers, and what we have seen there is that diversity also matters in um, peer review. So when we see homophily in peer review, that is, if you have one woman as a reviewer, you are disproportionately likely for a woman's paper to be accepted than if it is all men. Uh, When we have all men, men are more likely to be accepted. If you have one person from China, an author from China is more likely to be accepted. So we know that changing up who is doing the reviewing changes who gets accepted. And that changes the composition of science, right? What we know about science is that which is published. So there are so many things that can happen in the composition of the peer review teams and the editors themselves um, that will change what gets accepted. Did you have a question, Marina?
1: Yeah, I just wanted to interject because you mentioned um, if an author is from Asia, for example, or China, and the review is from China, but most journals have double-blinded review processes. So in theory, they shouldn't be able to know the, the ethnicity, right?
2: Surprisingly, most journals have single-blind peer review processes. So there are only a few disciplines in which um, double-blind peer review is the norm. Um, for most disciplines, single-blind peer review remains the norm. So there are two different ways that you can switch on that. You can say double-blind would be a more... Um, equitable and ethical way to do peer review, or some people move towards open peer review as the most equitable um, way to do peer review. So I think we need to review our peer review process and make sure that we are mitigating bias in that. Um, But I think journals can also do many, many other things. One is requiring contributorship statements. I think that's really important for people to have to articulate who did what to warrant authorship on the paper, to both reduce on a authorship, um, but also to sort of highlight and codify the kinds of labor contributions that it takes to be on a paper. I think providing transparency is huge of moving forward to be able to demonstrate for a journal and to its readers what kind of composition they have in authorship and in referencing um, and in gatekeeping. All of those things make a huge difference. And it that's what always surprises me when I present the research is when people see the numbers, they say, oh. I had no idea it was that bad, right? We're all living in science, we're seeped in science, but sometimes we don't have that macro level view to see what it actually looks like. So I think there's a lot of transparency that can be done there. I think there are definitely some more sort of radical approaches like requiring citation diversity statements or even requiring some levels of diversity in the citations. I think those kinds of moments are asking us to to challenge our approaches to research um, in ways that that make us more reflective of how implicit bias may be seeping into our scientific practices.
0: I'm somehow you know, still wanting to pick your brains a little bit more on how we can, because um, I, I, I think at least from my experience, I'm seeing that the discussions around diversity, equity and inclusion is definitely something that also COVID has helped to highlight. You mentioned earlier on about how there were clearly, you know, uh, gender differences between the distribution of work and publications that were coming out, but also uh, in terms of funding applications uh, on, on a gender level. And I think COVID has, you know, sort of magnified some existing issues that have been going on. But just coming back to, you know, having a policy on diversity and equity and inclusion is really the first step of this whole process. And I've encountered many institutions that have great policies. Um, but the implementation of institutional change is a whole different uh, beast, so to speak. Um, Can you give us some good examples, some winning examples in your experience of how institutions have implemented this, how research institutions have taken policy to the ground level?
2: Unfortunately, or, or perhaps not surprisingly, the best examples I can point to are when funders have taken a stand. It is... Amazing how nimble researchers can be in changing practices when money is at stake. Um, so I mentioned the NIH policy, but I think the Athena Swan um, initiative within the UK is another really interesting one. So they used to have different, you know, levels for compliance of demonstrating how many women you had in leadership positions um, within your lab structure, and as soon as they tied that to to funding at the um, in the UK, all of a sudden the amount of women leading labs within the biomedical sciences within the UK skyrocketed. It went up because it was required for funding. You had to have a woman as a a PI or co-PI on the proposal in order to be funded. And suddenly, things shifted. And so I think there are many examples like that where we can see moments where funding agencies made things requirements and they changed. We see the same thing for open access publishing. As soon as the NIH created a mandate requiring deposit within PubMed, suddenly all of these scientists who had said there is no possible way they could comply with open access mandates, suddenly they were all compliant. Um, and so we see this over and over again, that when funding agencies get behind a policy, um, it becomes uh, immediately effective.
1: You <clears throat> mentioned the um, um, uh, just now the, the open access mandates um, and that that really well helped increase publications or o- open publications in a way. Um, So can you relate to that as well? So how, um, if there's these policies that steer us towards um, increasing diversity, um, for example, how that also impacts on issues such as, um, um, well, research integrity issues. There is a whole bunch, of course, but I'll leave it to you where you see some connections.
2: Yeah, that's it. It's an amazing question. And of course, we've been talking about COVID, so it's it's on my mind a little bit. Um, one of, I think, the most interesting statements that I saw around open access within the last few years was actually the Wellcome Trust's um, statement, where it brought together publishers and funders um, and researchers together to state a commitment to open access, both in terms of providing data, um, but also providing preprints and in circulating things open. And the statement itself is very interesting because it said that open access was necessary to save lives. That in this pandemic, that the fast circulation of materials was essential, right? That this was life-saving for them to do. So it's it's an interesting moment in open access to say that it is actually just and good to make science open, that science is indeed a public good whose value isn't lessened when it's shared widely, and that this was something that we should do. So that's a a very interesting moment for me when I think about access. And as we're moving forward and thinking about integrity, we have to say sort of two things. One, integrity to science, but also our responsibility to society. And I think that we've seen clear links that making research open and accessible is something that is good for society. But the perversion of that is that the open access argument has largely been about openness for readers, not necessarily openness for authors. And so coming back to some of the um, issues between the core and the periphery is that we also know that women in marginalized communities are funded at a lower rate. They have fewer resources. So as open access becomes an APC model where you're paying to play and those APCs are starting to exceed $10,000 dollars, you are creating barriers of who can actually be a scientist, who can publish. And my concern is, is that move towards gold open access actually becomes a barrier to participation in science for those from countries and from populations that have fewer resources. And so we have to be very careful in these, is that in one moment by saying everything has to be open access, we see that as a public good and I believe it to be. But when we put a price tag on it, that also becomes a space where we are discriminating against certain populations and prohibiting their entry into science.
1: Agreed. And I just remember the conversation, because I'm a big fan of transparency and open, so open data, open code, um, especially the latter, of course, and discussing this with colleagues who are like, but that just takes so much of my time. And I was just saying, no, no, it speeds up your life. It's efficient. Um, Others will help you. Um, And then during this conversation i mentioned like others will help you and they do but perhaps one of these things is they help me because i'm a white man so that's mm-hmm. just like one of those things where i'm convinced it helps in the long term but that might also be my by side so i like that that um why well, I, I like that um, <laughs> it's nice that you share um this uh, conjunction between how things that we are trying to improve on research and integrity might also play out in a in a less positive way um, on the more social justice um, side of this this endeavor, yeah,
2: I, I think about that too with with peer review because I tend to equate openness with good, and so I want everything to be open. But in the open peer review conversation, I have some similar concerns: is opening the content of peer review? I'm I'm a big fan of. I think that that is essential for research transparency. But opening the names of the peer reviewers also seems to forget that we have power hierarchies in science. And if you are a younger, more vulnerable scientist still looking for a secure position, your ability to critique and engage in any sort of negative feedback openly and publicly is diminished compared to someone who's in a much more secure position. So we also have those kinds of power hierarchies and vulnerabilities that we have to account for when we move openness because openness creates vulnerabilities and vulnerability is not equally
0: shared across the population. Excellent points. I think it also goes to say who's sitting at the table and who gets to make these decisions. And then it, you know, it's like a full circle coming back to then needing a diverse inclusive uh, group of individuals who are sitting at the table and who ha- who have the opportunity to have their views and voices heard. Um, coming back to the paying to play, I quite like that tagline of open access that you just described, and I know that that's increasingly now being discussed about how this is this might be actually further. Um, uh, aggravating inequalities in terms of, you know, authorships at least, and, um, and that countries uh, from the low and middle income uh, areas might be less, uh, might be disadvantaged because of the high fees that they still have to cough out to be able to uh, publish open access. How do you see alternatives to this? Could you Could you share some of your thoughts on this? How can we be innovative?
2: Absolutely. This is one of those spaces where I think we, we often look at certain countries as leaders in science and we talk about ways that we can um, raise up certain populations. And we often create this sort of North-South divide and say, oh, let's raise up the Global South. This is a space where I think the Global South um, is doing incredible work and the North has a lot to learn from it. So when I look at platforms like Cielo in South America where they have created a fully open access infrastructure that really empowers researchers in that area to disseminate their work, that to me is something that I think we should try to replicate. It demonstrates that it's feasible, that publishing does have a cost, but that cost is minor and there is money in the system. If we look at the amount of money that the US, for example, puts in, and the Netherlands too, to subscription databases, um, within our libraries, it's an enormous amount of resources. If we were to consolidate those resources and create platforms for the dissemination of research, um, it's, it's feasible. We've seen that other countries can do it. Now, of course, the linchpin in all of this is our evaluation systems. As long as our evaluation systems devalue publications um, that are community-owned and operated and valorize um, corporate-owned <laughs> venues, uh, we will continue to have this kind of discrepancy and tension. But I do believe that we are at a moment in history where the scientific community can and should take ownership for its scholarly communication system. And the funding is is possible to make that happen. We just have to be willing to take the leap and change our evaluation systems to match it.
1: For our uh, audience in a few episodes, we'll actually be discussing um, um, this topic specifically with um, a... Um, uh, researcher um, who has actually been working on new ways of publishing and evaluating um, science output. So, um, thanks for the setup, Cassidy, um, but uh, we'll dive also in more depth on that uh, in a couple of episodes. So, stay tuned for that topic. Um, Gauri, you mentioned the uh, World Conference on Research Integrity in Cape Town on yes. the similar topic that we're discussing now, so yes. perhaps we can dive a bit into that.
0: Yes, indeed. Um, So at every World Conference, there's often a statement that comes out that is then put up for discussion and then eventually published and hopefully will lead to then concrete change uh, within the research community in areas of research integrity and research um, uh, quality uh, that we need to look at. So the last World Conference was in Hong Kong and that resulted in the uh, Hong Kong principles that were put out and they centered mainly around researcher assessment. Uh, I'm happy to to say that this World Conference, despite the divided views that we just talked about, about the two schools of thought in terms of, you know, what does diversity, equity and inclusion really mean to research integrity? And is it not more an issue of social justice? I'm happy to say that the Cape Town Conference, you know, has as its theme uh, diversity and will be addressing uh, research quality and its links to research integrity uh, I'm really curious to hear from you in the limited time that we have left with three minutes left of of, uh, of your time, Cassidy. And I'm curious if there is one main statement that you'd like to put out, you know, to um, the World Conference um, on Research Integrity, which is, you know, going to the, it really centrally look at this issue of diversity and you having spent you know, much of your research time looking at this issue, what would but that be one important key message that you would like to put out? That's difficult. Who is the the famous scholar who said, you know,
2: ask me to talk for an hour and I need five minutes, ask me <laughs> to, you know, say one <laughs> sentence and I need five hours. Um, if I had to reduce it down to a sentence, it's that diversity is essential for robust research. And I, I think that has to be the principle here that as scientists, we have to understand that our system has not been meritocratic. And many times we resist diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives um, because, (laughs) sorry, my my dog really wants to participate in this. But... (laughs) I know, I know. know. But many times we resist these kinds of diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives on the assumption that they are non-meritocratic and that we believe that the meritocracy is a important, almost essential criteria for doing scientific work. And my argument is, is that we have not been um, and nor are we now in a meritocratic science, um, science system. And we have an opportunity to do so. And that that requires a commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion.
0: That's such a great last parting note. Um, I have to say that uh, that's one of the strongest arguments that I've heard most of the time is that when you focus on diversity, that you might be sacrificing quality and you've just basically said that that's got nothing to do with um, uh, that they're not connected at all and we need to try harder um, in, in getting more diverse groups because that affects the quality of the kind of research we're putting in. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Cassidy, for um, uh, joining us in the in the podcast and sharing your um, um, views. This was Research Integrity Matters with uh, Cassidy Sugimoto, um, hosted by uh, Gauri and Marino and produced by Maarten van Woerkom Media. And we thank the Netherlands Research Integrity Network for sponsoring our podcast series um, and making this possible. You can follow Research Integrity Matters in your favorite podcast apps like Spotify, Google Podcasts, or Apple Podcasts. And with respect to the latter, we'd like to ask you to leave a review, and that will help others discover this podcast. On our website, you can also post your questions for future episodes or send in your feedback, because we are always open um, for that. That's it for this time. Thanks for listening, and until the next episode.